Hi, I'm Rob Dietz. I'm Cheryl Miller. And I'm Jason Bradford. Welcome to Crazy Town, where we give you 10 to 1 odds that Las Vegas will be a ghost town by the end of the century. Today's topic is self-domestication and humanity's rise into a hyper-cooperative species. Evolutionary biologists run amok. (laughs) Get ready, folks. Okay, guys, you guys are probably aware that my degree is in evolutionary biology, so I'm pretty excited about today's show and what we're going to talk about, because I can talk about Charles Darwin. Wow, your yeah. hero, your personal hero. Did you know that my boys were born on the same day that Charles, not the day, like the same year? Your two boys, Charles and Darwin, right? No, I, I tried. I couldn't. <laughs> Couldn't go that far. Right. But February Christian was like not having it. Huh? No, February twelfth. Okay, so that was a big deal for me personally. Well, what was February twelfth? I know that, it's their birthday, but what, what Charles was... Darwin's birthday. Oh, okay, uh, they have the same birthday. They have the same birthday. This is perfect. Okay, I've got the fecundity award at the <laughs> annual Charles Darwin birthday party in graduate school wow. because of this. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I left my wife and kids I, at the hospital. I, I, I went to the party, <laughs> and I got this award. I thought you were making that up, but I, I now see that's a real thing that happened. You yeah. actually, the, the nerdy other PhD candidates actually presented you with a fecundity award. I had didn't twins. They? Yeah. You know, it was all me, okay? I made her double, yeah, I made her, all, I made her double ovulate. Wow. Did you, uh, did you just claim like you did it all in the birth of children? Because that just doesn't play well thing, with, with yeah. the mothers. His wife doesn't listen to this podcast. Shit. Okay, Melody, cu- cut this part out maybe, all right? Let's talk about editing. Oh, Anyhow, okay, let's move on. So Darwin had a book called The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication, published in 1868. I know we've all read this. And it was... <laughs> okay. Okay? It was very influential for this, uh, this, this doctor, uh, this research scientist in the Soviet Union, and I apologize for all our Russian Crazy Town fans. Yeah. I am not sure I'm going to pronounce any names correctly going forward here. Okay? Dmitry uh, Belyev. And he had a very important assistant at the time, Ludmila Trut. Wow. And they were at What the, about uh, Nikolai Volkov? Was he involved? I don't know. Let me keep reading. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, that, got, that's a wrestler from the old days of the WWF. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Three of our listeners just got that and were like laughing. <laughs> anyway, they worked at the Institute of Cytology and Genetics in Novosibirsk, Siberia, which apparently was this like place pretty high up in the, you know, Siberia. And they were somewhat isolated then from like Moscow and the political machinations oh. going on. Was that like a punishment? Did yeah, he exactly. banish to this lab? <laughs> exactly. Well, it was supposed to be this great city in Siberia where they were going to, you know, the, they were going to do great things even up in that part of this, you know, quote unquote wasteland. Okay. Um, but anyhow, the problem that they had was that in the Soviet Union, there, there was really a backlash against Darwinism. And genetics. Unlike this country. Right. Yeah, we have no issues with that. (laughs) Right. This is very ideological, not from a religious perspective, but they kind of, anyway, it's complicated. But what ended up happening was Stalin put in place this guy who was this uneducated peasant, and he ended up rising very high in the ranks of like the science, you know, institutes of the Soviet Union. His name was uh, Trofin uh, Lysenko, and he almost just cut out the research of these people, which I will get into, which is very important. Okay. But he, it was saved by Rada Khrushchev, Khrushchev the, yeah. the daughter 
Oh, the daughter. Of the leader. I I feel like you're uh, going through some like Dr. Zhivago or Crime and Punishment, some like epic Russian story here. All these characters. What I'm saying is that one of the greatest experiments in the history of evolutionary biology. Which you're about to tell us. Which I'm about to tell us. Almost didn't happen. Because of bizarre stuff happening in the Soviet Union. I bet you Nikolai Volkov stormed the ring and <laughs> saved the day, right? Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah. So they kind of had to hide what they're doing. And so they were domesticating Thank foxes. Thank God they're way up there yes. in Siberia. Yeah. And they were domesticating foxes. And um, and you can say, oh, we're making nice fur coats. And we're, you know, we're do-. it was really a secret study of, 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 the, of how domestication happens. And what are the consequences? Because there's this thing called that Darwin described all these traits of domesticated species, and it's called the domestication syndrome now. Okay. Um, domesticated animals are less aggressive. You know, they're more affable and cooperative. They they take juvenile kind of play characteristics and they maintain them into adulthood. You tell that to the Rottweilers that attack me when I ride by <laughs> on my bike. Yes. I think I think they missed that memo of of domestication <laughs> syndrome. It's imperfect still. We're, it's, we're all working towards okay. a better. You know, they have better eye contact, and and it's been measured now that there's real changes in key chemicals in the brain, like serotonin levels are higher in domesticates, oxytocin uh, levels, cortisol is downregulated more. Um, there is you know, less surges in testosterone in the males. And these alterations are not only on the, the, the chemistry in the brain, but there's these features of the organism and their morphology, which basically have taken juvenile characteristics of, of the body and sort of kept them into adulthood. Okay, so these Russian scientists who almost didn't do it yes. took a bunch of foxes and uh, what did they do? They just bred them and found out there's all these traits that, that pop up? All they did, they, they did the simplest thing. They had these foxes in these kind of cages, and they would approach, and they had hundreds of them, right? And they would approach, and the ones that were the tamest, the tamest 10%, they let breed. Mm. And they did that for six generations. They got something that looked like a puppy dog. Wow. In six generations. Yeah, that's six years. It's a generation a year. So in six years, they had a picture of this animal that had floppy ears, had a short snout, right. had sort of started getting modeled coating that, so that the color patterns started changing and would curl up in your lap like a little dog. Wow. So one, one thing that I, I didn't see in your notes, Jason, was there was a, another thing they figured out in this research, and that was, uh, they learned, what does the fox say? What are you talking about? Okay, someone's going That was probably the most important part of this study. I'm sorry. Jason doesn't get it. I didn't didn't even come across this. Uh, Yeah, you must have been out farming when the uh, international band Elvis came out with the song, What Does the Fox Say? You've got some some catching up to do. Yeah, yeah. After the show, I'll I'll, I'll play this. You're reading too many scientific papers and and not enough YouTube. Yes. Um, But really key, Carol, and one of the other key ones is important is concealed ovulation. Okay, and a-seasonal reproduction. Really interesting stuff, okay? So I think about the rut, the traditional rut. You imagine these like animals are like crashing and chest bouncing and their testosterone levels are surging. But no, in the domesticates, it's like 
No, it's just even keel. I can mate now, mate later. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so much less uh, forcefulness and much violence. Less and, yeah. Much less aggression. Yeah. By the way, I hear our Pacific tree frog might be uh, yeah, uh, moving us. around back there. He, he wants to be domesticated right now. <laughs> yes. Well, so you're talking about us us intervening. Yeah, right? artificially doing. Artificially that. domesticating. But mm-hmm. that's not the only form of domestication that happens, right? I mean, we also, we have, I guess, what, what people call self-domestication. Well, right? I think that's an important distinction is that this was actually a test of how things were domesticated and what would happen. And you're right. I think that that now we think that a lot of times it's sort of species domesticate themselves. And then maybe what kicks in is what's called artificial selection. So that after they're kind of grabbed a little bit, then we start focusing on these traits. But when we talk about self-domestication, I mean, I think, at least for me, I think I always thought, okay, well, humans domesticated livestock, we domesticated dogs. You know, you're just describing that process of doing it with foxes. You know, I always assumed that we had done that with dogs a long time ago. But I think from what I've read and the research that I think has been been done looking back, that that actually dogs kind of domesticated themselves. Yes. Right? And so you know, from the predecessor of the wolf, they it wasn't like we took wolf puppies away from their pack. We didn't know, do the and, fox experiment. No, we didn't no. do that. They yeah. were, you know, there were some of these wolves who came close by. Maybe they were friendlier. They were less aggressive. They They looked... Less aggressive. We left them alone. They were eating our our garbage that we left on the outside of the the tribal grounds or whatever. And over time, they had a they had an advantage, right? An adaptive advantage because they had more calories and and they were able to thrive, right? Yeah. So they did it to themselves. Although right. much later, we did it, right? Like those kennel club people who run dogs around <laughs> right. and grab sure. them right. by the genitals and whatever. Like like <laughs> yeah. those guys are they're breeding dogs for uh, and if, for specific. If those wolves had known what would happen to them, <laughs> yeah, they would have someday stayed, stayed wolf. I'm going to be a chihuahua again. My balls felt <laughs> right. some weird on camera. <laughs> exactly. Right. No, that's the thing. So I think I think what we're getting at is that. They the the these animals made the initial step to come close to us, and then we said, "Okay, yeah, come on in." And now I'm going to even I'm going to select on the traits I really like, right. right? You know, like so sitting in the lap, and so that brings us to what we want to want to point out is the hidden driver of of this episode, which is that we humans have gone through this process of self domestication. Uh, you know, we used to be a wild species. I don't know if we uh, ever did the rut thing that you were talking about, <laughs> Jason. But over time, we we developed these traits of the of the domestication syndrome, and we did that through evolutionary forces, right? Yeah, and I think also the thing about it is there are wild species that have elements of the syndrome. So, for example, the bonobo chimpanzee is kind of considered almost a parallel. Yeah. of humans in the sense that, yeah, it got sort of tamer. It got friendlier. Mm-hmm. It didn't kick into the, the degree we did. But in essence, I wouldn't say there's a difference of like, oh, now we're not wild. No, we did this as a species out in the wild, right? Yeah. And so that's how I don't, but but then we took other organisms and we quote unquote domesticated them and brought them in the fold of, of you know, human human society. Right. But if we are, are self-domesticated species now, 
Uh, and we want to talk about that as something that's driven us into the sustainability crises and, and other problems that we see today. I think it's important to figure out or, or to explain what are the characteristics of of that self domestication in humans, and uh, uh-huh. what, what does that what does that mean for us? Like, wh- who who are we as a result of that? Well, we're tamer, right, and behaviorally less aggressive, more affable, more cooperative playfulness retained to in adulthood, more interested in communication and these eye, eye contexts and, and physical changes. So the term is often used in development is neoteny, which is the taking of juvenile traits and <laughs> extending the period of development. So of, basically, we never grew up. Yeah, fits, right. fits well for the three of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we like are juveniles. so advanced. <laughs> yeah. So you extend the period of maturation. So it just takes longer and longer to go through the normal stages of maturation. And finally, your gonads mature, and you you kind of look like an, a, a juvenile of this of you know a related species. Too, too many inappropriate jokes right there. I'm just gonna shut up here for a bit. <laughs> yeah. I just have this picture of this kid in the basement of his parents' house. He's like twenty whatever. He's like. I'm just evolving here, okay? Come on. <laughs> Never grew up. Right. So, so, so basically this friendliness and cooperativeness yeah. uh, became our, our defining trait. Yeah. It, and if that's, if that's the case, it's, it's interesting to think about that that self-domestication had this profound impact on the course of not only our history, but the, the, the history of of the planet and other species. I mean, this seems to change over time, but <laughs> now they're talking about how they're, they're up to nine closely related species, right? Homo species, right? right. We're homo sapiens and there are others that coexist. They coexisted right. at the same time. We're the only ones left. Yeah. And to think that it was our, our friendliness, our self-domestication towards friendliness and maybe more cooperation and these other traits that we had that actually led to the downfall and our competition against these other species that I think arguably they say may have been more intelligent than us, stronger than us. You would think in the abstract that we wouldn't have been the ones to to have outlasted and outcompeted these other species. Well, like, like for the Neanderthals, or Neanderthals. Neanderthals, for example. <laughs> when did that happen, by the way? I, it was about eight I, years ago. I, I like Neanderthal better. Neander- it, it was on, Tall. you know, it, it was on uh, the, the birthday of of Darwin. Of Darwin, they <laughs> changed it. They changed it. Who, who's who's the decider in the official pronunciation of an extinct species of hominid? I, that's <laughs> the friendliest person. It should be Jason after the his uh, his Russian pronunciations at the top. <laughs> uh, I am so sorry, comrades. Uh, uh, anyhow, where were we? <laughs> well, I think we're talking about the. Uh, it sounds to me like friendliness as a superpower. Oh yeah, but and then the, so the the Andertals, I was going to say had larger brains. They they were very well adapted to life in 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 Europe and even northern Europe they yeah. they were they had a, they had a, had like bigger lung cages and stouter and they were furrier and like all these things you think I could deal with cold better and and somehow yeah they, uh, these little kind of juvenile looking runts show up and, and eventually kick their ass yeah right you know? Right. I think we just gave them the puppy eyes, and then we hit them upside the head <laughs> with a stick or something. <laughs> oh, gosh. So uh, 
I was never a fan of the show Survivor. I'm not a I'm not a reality TV guy very much, but I do know that the motto of that show was outwit, outplay, outlast. Right. And it seems like uh that that really is I think most people's notion of of how one species outcompetes another. But what what we're really saying is humans developed the superpower of friendliness and ours became something more like out cooperate. Yeah. Out hug, um, out trade, out you know, like kind of these uh, very friendly, cooperative ways of of advancing beyond these other competing humanoids, yeah. hominids, hu- humanids. And I think saying, "Hey, we're friendlier," so we so we outlasted and outcompeted. It was the fact that we developed these forms of communication. We had trade between groups. We were able to harness the creativity and the technology that was developed from other tribes or other groups through this cooperation and friendliness that we had that allowed us to have these material advantages over these other species. Yeah, there was like a proposal, there was a positive feedback loop between extending the time of development that allows learning the learning period, you know, how there's the idea that there's there's these windows where you learn languages easier, and there's a time that it takes the brain to develop its sort of synapses and, and grooves and then pruning and all this, that it just, we have all this time in the human brain to develop. And, and so you just have this openness to new things and really a lot of creativity. And that sort of advanced culture and language so much. And then once you have that, you can coordinate like crazy and plan. And then, yeah, that, that's what it wasn't the physicality of us as individuals. It was this collective ability to plan and execute. Okay, most people think of that as a hugely positive thing, right? Like it's a good thing that we can cooperate, that we can uh, plan and, and do these wonderful works together, right? But it seems like there's got to be a downside there, doesn't there? Well, that's what we're talking about now. I mean, that that cooperation, that that ability to harness all this technology and that creativity collectively has now led us to dominate the planet and dominate it to the point where our own survival and the survival of all these other species is at risk. Yeah, Jason, you uh, turned me on to this quote here from a guy named Nick Longrich. Thankfully, he's not Russian. I yeah, can pronounce that's that. An easy uh, one. Senior lecturer of paleontology and evolutionary biology at the University of Bath. You want to read that for us since you found it? But cave paintings, carvings, and musical instruments hint at something far more dangerous. A sophisticated capacity for abstract thought and communication. The ability to cooperate, plan, wow, this is so strategize, dramatic. manipulate, and deceive may have been our ultimate weapon. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like that's the deal. So we, we do this self-domestication thing, and suddenly a couple hundred thousand years later, we're dominating everything because yeah. we're so friendly. Well, I do want to point out that it may have allowed us to dominate the planet, certainly dominate these other species, including other homo species, but there was a lot of kind of 
intraspecies <laughs> fighting that's been going on yeah. right, for for a long time. Can you prove and, that? Has a human ever raised a finger against right. another human? Yeah, if you look at hi- the history books... <laughs> I'm raising like, my finger against you guys right now. <laughs> history books are just... They're kind of boring. They're just filled yeah. with stories of everyone getting along, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. But I, if I have to listen to one more time that uh, people sang Kumbaya around the uh, campfire... The Game of Thrones is just like uh, one sickening, sappy scenario after another. I know. <laughs> I just want to point out, yes, we, can, we talk about friendliness and cooperation, but there's been a lot of fighting as well within the species and, and frankly, a lot of domination, particularly European domination of, of, of indigenous peoples all around the world, you know, a huge consequence of that. Well, then also within, I mean, the European history is like these borders, right, that kind of ebb and flow a little bit of these European nation states and these fiefdoms and all the castles you can go find. Where so, they were just like protecting their territory. So what, what is a fief exactly? And how does one who is a fief come to get a fiefdom? Darn it. <laughs> I wish I was better at knowing what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's a great word. Yeah, I know. Yeah, maybe, it's a big one. Maybe we can all aspire to become fiefs. <laughs> You're just a lord. You know, it's, a self, it's a self-domesticated lord. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or in Scotland, it'd be a laird. <laughs> so, so, okay, that's fine. I mean, uh, no one disputes that uh, that there's a lot of infighting that's happened, but you still can't dispute that through our cooperative tendencies, we've we've kind of colonized the whole planet. Yeah. I mean, I, this, this kind of reminds me of, um, I've got an ant story for you. Oh, like your uh, your aunt and uncle? No, no, no. Like, wasn't there a Pixar film like that, or the ants? Uh, yeah, the Pixar one was Bugs Life. There was one called Ants okay. that was, uh, I think, DreamWorks. Uh, oh, okay. So I've done Sorry. with the pop culture. I was crap. just, I was just trying to give you a chance. Nikolai Volkov was in neither movie. Okay. <laughs> okay. The and there Jerry was a, Seinfeld was. And there was a one. There was a. No, that was, was B movie. Oh crap! What, God, what was so the close. ant movie where there were giant ants? That was. Cool. Oh, you're you're like going way back. Way like, back. Fifties. Empire of the Ants, or I don't know, there were a bunch of there those. There were a bunch. Yeah. Giant insects attacking civilization is always held in high regard. It is, and that's impossible, but it is possible for ants to really take over. And so there's a fantastic, really interesting research. I guess this is great. I got to geek out on this again of the Argentine ant. <sighs> Evolutionary biologist, run amok. <laughs> Get ready, folks. So the Argentine ant, actually, a lot of people are familiar with it, but not from its native habitat. It, it's from Argentina is where it, the the native range is, and it's it's got a modest range, and you know an individual colony might occupy say the area of a backyard, you know, a suburban backyard normally, okay. and what ends up happening is that it, the colony spread is sort of hampered by the fact that there's another colony and it's. It's got its own territory. It's kind of like defending its territory. So in this, like, in the wild native state of these of the species of ant, they kind of keep each other in check. They spend energy sort of fighting these pitched battles along the territory. So this is kind of like uh, the fiefdom thing, like like yeah. humans used to be. Like humans used to be. You know, it's sort of in the old days. The Earth can kind of tolerate humans spread out because we were kind of keeping each other in check. In check right? <laughs> wow. But here's the, here's the interesting take on this: is that it's been this, the species has now been transported around the world. The Argentine ants. The Argentine ants have been spread. Okay, and 
where they've gone to, they've taken over in just enormous ways. And people thought maybe it was a normal kind of invasive species story where, oh, you know, it somehow is is really well adapted to this new environment and no one knows how to deal with it. But it turns out there's a special sauce to its success. It's that when they when they trans when they got transported and, and colonized a new area, there was no genetic variation. And so when each ant colony spreads and creates another colony, the colonies don't recognize each other as different. They mm. function as one super colony. Wow. <laughs> and so there's a there's a super colony in Cal- in like the West Coast California area that apparently has about a trillion individuals in it. <laughs> trillion. Yeah. And I, I don't understand that number. Okay. Just let's look at the national debt clock. Okay. Um, oh, money. Now yeah, I yeah, understand right, it. Yeah, okay. Right, yeah. right. Money's easy. Yeah. Easy to understand. Uh, but apparently also there's the same phenomena as in Japan, in like the Mediterranean, and even the same gen- genotypes. So the same genotype that's in California apparently is also in Japan and Europe. So it's almost like there's this global super colony. Except in Argentina. If they go back there, then the, gonna get then the, then the shit gets real. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and so it, it's it's this idea that they were released essentially from the competition between their own kind. They became super cooperative. <laughs> and then they just they just took over they decimated other species there are problem invasive species leading to the extinction and the takeover habitat uh it's kind of like what we did you know it yeah it's so it's so interesting to think about that because here we we seem to have this celebration of global connectivity and a sharing of culture and yes. you know i think about but some of these pundits that we have and thought leaders who who talk about how this is the least violent we've ever been, you know, paints sort of this rosy picture right. of of cooperation globally. And those are all things that, yes, we want to see. We want to see reduced violence globally, fewer wars, you know, more cooperation. Yeah, the neoliberal promise. But there's this dark side to it, right, is if there are no limits there. Oh, through that cooperation, you know. Yeah, it's it's infuriating. I don't know if you guys saw that book that came out this past year called One Billion Americans. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, gosh. just, uh, it's it's almost like a uh, Argent, Argentine yeah. ants, like, let's keep it going. Let's let's expand even more. Let's, uh, let's, yeah. let's keep this story. Uh, well, the analogy, like, they, they call these super colonies of ants. And and I I know that we've seen the heard the analogy for humans of calling where the super organism. Yeah, our right? friend Nate Higgins has, has talked about humans as a super organism. As a super organism. This just machine just churning up the planet now because we've basically removed the limits on ourselves. The, 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 what you see happening is, is all through a collective action yeah. of the super organism rather than you know, the, the individual In a bizarre outcome of our friendliness, right? Like it's such a strange thing to consider, but I think Jason, you're raising this really challenging question for us because what, it's not like we want to be advocating for us to go to sort of follow that Argentine, you know, ant model (laughs) in the native place, in the native place. Yeah. Let's, let's go back and relocalize and then beat the shit out of each other to control ourselves. The last thing we want is cooperation (laughs) and friendliness amongst people. This is a conundrum. Yeah. We're stuck between these things. Right. Well, so, I mean, I think that's the question, right? Is like, okay, 
If we're going to relocalize either by some planned way of, of getting out of the, our overshoot predicament where we're, there's too many of us consuming too much, if we're going to do that in a planned way or whether nature forces it on us, let's just, let's just say somewhere down the road we're, we're relocalizing our communities and, into bioregions or whatever it is, nations that are smaller. How do we do that? without sort of reigniting the the violence and the the Hatfield versus McCoy uh, vibe that is that's been around in the Argentine ants and has been around in in humans uh, history right I'm not sure we can give a good answer to that question I don't know that there is a good answer to that question I mean I think on some level I I think well hell so we we domesticated ourselves mm-hmm now maybe the next step is that we moderate ourselves. Like we have to figure out how to do that for ourselves in a way where we we sort of embrace not only these natural limits and we return ourselves back to more grounded communities, place-based communities living within ecological limits, but done in a way where there is still this coordination and communication and cooperation amongst these communities, you know, and that in the face of more scarcity, it takes us recognizing that what we actually have to do is to share and cooperate more. Mm -hmm. Even with groups that are far flung from us, you know, which has always been hard for people to do until we've had all this international trade and all these intergovernmental agreements. We're having trouble, but we're trying a little bit. But how do we do that? And it's a lot of surplus. And a lot of surplus to do that. You can hop on planes, global communication systems, shipping containers going back and forth, interlock financial systems. That's created superorganism that is killing us. But then, right, how do we retrench from that and maintain some sense of global community at the same time? Some sense of the... The other is not my enemy. The outgroup is still part of my in-group in the larger sense. Right. That's the conundrum we're in. Right. So the idea is somehow to supercharge the self-moderation. Uh, I think we need to get that characteristic that, that Soviet guy to kind of do that with us. Come back, and he's dead. The woman is still working there, or at least she was. A well, let's years get ago. her to yeah. do it. Let's yeah. take a group of us, go up to Siberia, you yeah. know, figure out how to get. This kind of population to self-moderate. I, you know? I'm there as long as I get to meet Nikolai Volkov. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deal. Stay tuned for our George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite segment, where we discuss things we could do to get the hell out of crazy town. Okay, Jason and Asher, I've got another awesome review to share from one of our listeners here in Crazy Town. My bruised ego lives for this moment. I need a little pick-me-up, too. It's like fan mail. This one comes to us from Irritating 1000. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Smart, sarcastic, funny. Want to laugh and cry at the same time. Have learned a lot, and even better, have been moved to get off my butt and get actively involved. Nice, but... To actively involved by irritating people? Is that <laughs> well, you know, I don't know what kind Everyone of Everyone plays their part. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. Maybe we need some irritants in the system out there. Yeah. Uh, seriously, thank you for that very kind review. Uh, it really does make us feel good, and it, we hope it influences 
everyone else out there to go and rate and review us, and maybe we'll get to yours on the air. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. (laughs) My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Okay, here in the self-domestication episode, we we were trying to come up with a a George Costanza-appropriate do-the-opposite, and we're just struggling. We failed. Uh, Because we we pointed out the conundrum, uh, and we just don't have an answer to that. That's why it's a conundrum. It's it's not like a crossword puzzle here. It's a conundrum. So the best that we could do is, instead of a do-the-opposite, is more of a think the opposite. Yeah, and I would say, so think the opposite, and that, that would be for people who who have been living with this sort of vision of progress in their mind, you know, they, they read Steve Pinker, whatever, mm-hmm. cooperation is going to continue, you know, uh, borders are going to be opened, there are no limits to our cooperation. We'll be mining asteroids. Right. Yeah. That, that think... Think the opposite. Allow yourself to think the opposite. What happens if there is actually limits to doing that? Right. You know, and and try to envision what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And then on the flip side, for people who who maybe are more aware, uh, like many of you probably are, that there are limits to our ability to continue to be on the path that we've been on, who can understandably fall into this sort of mindset that that means we're going to be resorting to living in, in small communities Competing for resources is sort of a fortress mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, think the opposite and envision a, a possible future where that is not—that's not a viable path either. Right, right, right. Where you're not fighting over the last can of beans with your uh, overly testosteroneed up neighbor. Exactly. Mm. So somewhere between the road and Star Trek, <laughs> there's got to be some middle way. Yeah. yeah, and it happens to be here still on I, planet Earth. <laughs> wow, I, I reread The Road, uh, the Cormac McCarthy book recently. Ah. I don't know why. I found yeah. it in one of those neighborhood community libraries. Yeah. You know, so there's there's some cooperation right neighbor. there. <laughs> was there. Was there like tear precipitation all over the pages? Right, right. What neighbor would do that to some kid, 13-year-old kid walking by? Oh, here's a book. Look, it's one who's not thinking the opposite the way you right. are. He's thinking it that, that pretty poor mentality. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks for joining us in Crazy Town. This is a program of Post Carbon Institute. Get more info at postcarbon.org. Hey, with all this stuff that's going on, the craziness in the world, you know, I'm really worried about reactive violence. This is something that was supposed to kind of be mostly winnowed out of us uh, as we self-domesticated, but there's still little bits of it there and, and it can it can pop up in times of stress. Oh, it's picking up hugely. The other day I asked my wife to pass the salt and she punched me in the face. Oh, exactly. Okay. I'm t- there's stories like this all over the place now. 
I punched you in the face just this morning. <laughs> I just I keep getting punched in the face. We got to solve this punch it's, in the it's face. It's one of those problem. positive feedback loops. You know, right. you get punched once. You, yeah, everyone a, else wants to keep I, punching. We have to you. break the cycle of reactive violence. It's such a punchable face. I gotta do so. I gotta I, I gotta like get some testosterone or something. No, 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 no. That goes the wrong direction. Oh. That's 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 what's causing too much. Oh, right, right. Thanks for getting. So you got me back on track. Yes, so please. here at Crazy Town, we're offering a new fundraiser. Uh, this is your chance to get in and, and buy something really useful. What we've done is we've sourced the best serotonin pills. We've packaged them up all nice, but we've labeled them as testosterone. Oh, this is great. Yeah, oh, so you, you can give them to your aggro neighbors, and yeah. uh, they'll, they'll gobble them, to them up. man up. Here, take this. Yeah. Man up, buddy. Yeah. And meanwhile, they'll be uh, just domesticating into a, oh. a blissful friend. Yeah, they're going to yeah, eventually com- turn into a dog. You can rub their belly. Yeah. They're going to be walking over saying, hey, do you need any eggs? Do you need any flour? Do you need any butter? you want to bake cookies? Oh, I'm so looking forward to not getting punched in the face oh, anymore. Yeah, yeah, we'll just eat chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> ring, ding, 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 ding. Crazy town. Da, 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 crazy town.